Hi, I'm David Ross, and welcome to episode 12 of the Sun's new podcast, Israel's War on Terror. As Israel's mission to wipe out Hamas in the wake of the October 7th massacre continues, so does the media war and the debate around its response. Many people and commentators in the Arab world are afraid to stand with Israel. Egyptian author Dalia Ziada did just that and had to go into hiding after receiving multiple death threats. She insists her stance was the right thing to do. My name is Dalia Ziada. I am an Egyptian writer uh, and researcher. Uh, I lead a think tank in Egypt it's called the Liberal Democracy Institute. And uh, a sub think tank inside this think tank, it's called the Meme Center. It, it started recently in 2021. Uh, we work on issues related to governance, geopolitics of the Middle East, uh, state-to-state relationships and uh, state affairs and uh, defense policy also in the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean. Okay, firstly, I was curious by your commentary on the October 7th massacre and Israel's response to it. As an Egyptian, how much pressure did you feel under to take a certain line? Oh, of course, you know, the Egyptian the Egyptian media and the Arab media was full of li- were full of lies about uh, what happened on October 7. No one called it a, mass- a massacre. No one said that it was targeting civilians. Uh, they were saying th- that it's only a clash between Israeli soldiers and Hamas militants, which is happening every now and then already so at the beginning like i didn't pay much attention to what was going on i said okay it's just another clash but soon after i was invited to a video conference with um, uh, organized by the ministry of foreign affairs and the ministry of defense where hundreds about 300 or so of arab researchers and journalists were attending and were invited as well and were attending from all over the Arab world, from all over the Arab countries. Uh, And they showed us what really happened on October 7th. They showed us the real videos from the houses, from the streets, even from the mobile phones of the militants of Hamas uh, terrorists. And I was so shocked and so offended by these lies especially for what happened to the women you know i very much related to that and i thought like someone should stand up and and speak up about about this and refute these lies in the arab media and tell the truth so i went on and used my social media platforms i have a good following there so i i just told the truth i said our media is lying and here is the truth this is what happened on that day and of course like a a horrible backlash was raised against me uh, because on one side the Islamists were very angry that I supported uh, I I, I condemned Hamas and on the other side the Egyptian state, the deep state in Egypt the establishment were very angry that I said I support Israel in its war on Hamas so I ended up being targeted by two big groups and powerful groups. And unfortunately, I got to a point that it was impossible to resist them or to protect myself in these circumstances. And I had to leave Egypt. 
So did you have to go into hiding? What was the actual response that, that you you made? What was the decision uh, that you were having to make for your own safety? Of course, at the beginning, first I, I thought like the danger is coming only from the side of the Islamists, which is very expected for me because I fight against them all my life. All my work is mainly against them, Islamists, extremists, and so so it's expected for them to attack me. So I contacted people in the Egyptian authorities, I mean like state security and other authorities in Egypt whom I know because of my work because of my work, like leading a think tank in Egypt. So I told them like, there is serious threat. People are going to my mother's house looking for me. The Salafists, the radicals, they want to punish me. They are sending me death threats. I need your protection. But the answer was very shocking was, we will not protect you. We are not ready to do that because you made a big mistake. And this big mistake is that you said you support Israel. And I was shocked, of course, when I heard this from the officer I was talking with. And because like, I can't really believe like this person did not mind seeing me being killed by some fanatic in the street just because I said I support Israel. And despite the fact that we already have peace treaty with Israel and a history of more than seven years of very fruitful cooperation on the economic and even military levels with Israel. So I was shocked, really. This, this was the moment when I realized, okay, something really bad is going to happen to me. So I, I went on hiding in my own apartment in Cairo. It's away from my family house. And uh, like, I tried not to communicate with people at all, but just the next day, the next morning, uh, a lawyer, uh, who's very close also to the Egyptian state, like uh, filed a legal claim against me at the public prosecutor's office, accusing me of espionage and committing high treason. At that moment, I knew, okay, like being being hiding here is not, or hide, being in Egypt in general is going to end up in a very tragic way. I have I have to, to do something. So my first, my, my initial thought was to go to Turkey because I was having a fellowship uh, program there that was going to start soon, an academic fellowship program with one of the universities there. So I thought, okay, I can go early for a few days earlier and hide there and so. But the surprise was that on that same day, I was planning to travel. I received a letter from Turkey, from this academic fellowship program, saying that they canceled my fellowship, simply because, again, I'm supportive of Israel and I said Hamas is is you know Turkey now is like blindly supporting Hamas and so so of course the only place I thought I should come to uh, I said okay so I should look for a western country you know I just don't want to say where I am right now you know so I looked for places in western countries and I immediately like like started moving on and and uh, getting away from where I've been but this shows you like how serious the response was like it was not only the Egyptian government but even the Turkish government are refused to to have me as a fellow which is it's a big like I didn't I didn't expect like saying the true thing I believe that I am the one on the right side I'm saying the right thing I'm not saying the lies and despite that I'm seeing in my country and in my region as a threat to their national security while 
the terrorists and the many radicals in the Egyptian and Arab street who are cheering for these terrorists are not seen as a threat. This is irony, actually. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that Hamas has managed to gain support outside of fanatics in Gaza? Why is the message from Israel and other parts of the world about terrorist groups and terror activities not penetrating in the Arab world? Uh, I think what Hamas did, this massacre of the October 7 attacks, created a momentum for radical Islamists in the region. For a while, we've seen these radical Islamists uh, have been pushed under the ground by Arab states who looked at them as threats. We saw, for example, the fight or the how the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain coordinated to fight against the Muslim Brotherhood in the past few years. We've seen how Israel and Egypt have coordinated to fight against Hamas in Sinai uh, in the past few years as well. So this coordinated pressure on political Islamism in the region and fighting terrorism and so succeeded in pushing radical Islamists under the ground. What Hamas did created a momentum for these radical Islamists to return back to the surface and lead and lead the public opinion under the claim that they are speaking in the name of the Palestinian cause. This so-called Palestinian cause, you know, has been used for decades by dictators in the region, by the Islamists. For several, for several reasons, dictators used this Palestinian cause to distract people from their internal problems, economic and political issues. On the other side, Islamists used this to recruit supporters and to claim that we need more fighters to fight against uh, the Israelis and liberate Al-Aqsa, liberate Al-Aqsa, you know, all these slogans. So they very well cleverly used this, and now they are using this again. But what really enabled Islamists, radical Islamists this time to lead the public opinion is that the dictators, the leaders in the region are bending to them. They refuse to stand up against them this time. For Take Egypt's case, for example. Egypt has been fighting Hamas for years and Israel has been on the side of Egypt all the time in this fight, including like allowing the Egyptian troops to come very close to the Israeli borders. And even uh, Israel, Israeli military helping with the Egyptian military in in uh, airstrikes and so on terrorist on terrorists in Sinai. So, despite that, Egypt, which has always labeled Hamas as terrorist organization, the Egyptian leadership all of a sudden after this happened uh, recently, uh, the October seven and the wars that happened after that changed the rhetoric saying that Hamas is a res resistance movement. It's uh, they are doing something good or so. And we've seen even the Egyptian president who's known for being fighting against Islamists, like making big conferences just to uh, appear like a champion of the Palestinian cause. Of course, this has a political dimension because these dictators like the Egyptian president, Jordanian leadership or the Jordanian king and so on, 
and, and others even in the Gulf. And so they think that they cannot challenge the street on this now. They are too scared to challenge the street because they are already weak in their positions as dictators uh, because of their economic problems and political oppression and so on. So they don't want to challenge this. So actually they decide like to bend with the rhetoric in the street. And that's one of the reasons why I think, for example, they choose to attack people like me, not only in Egypt, but in all over the Arab region who spoke up against Hamas. So they, they appear like, okay, you see, we are very sympathetic with the Palestinians and so. So they're scared to speak up against Hamas and say exactly what this terror organization stands for and does. You're not scared. You're, you have the courage to, to do this. How have you maintained that courage? And has there been at any point, any time where you thought, what on earth am I doing here? I'm putting myself at, at too much risk. Oh, actually, I believe very much in what I'm doing. I, I believe very much that I'm on the right side of the equation, that I'm doing the right thing. Also, what I have seen in, in the massacre, vid massacre videos makes me feel responsible. Like, I felt the responsibility that I have to stand up for the Jewish people and among my Arab and Muslim fellows who are practicing so much anti-Semitism against them. I have seen how evil Hamas is with my own eyes, even when they were in Egypt, when they were targeting our soldiers in Sinai, how, how, how they don't care even about this Palestinian cause they are singing all the time, actually. They, they're only... Their only concern is their Islamic caliphate. So I know, I know how bad these Islamists are. So I thought like someone should speak up and I thought I can be this one. And I, I really don't regret it at all. And if I was put in this situation again and I have the choice, I will do it again, definitely. Because it's it's no one with like minimum constitutions can tolerate what happened or accept seeing women being raped, children being kidnapped and killed, people, civilians, innocent civilians in their homes being attacked and just tolerate this because they are not Arabs or they are not Muslim, they are they are Jewish, so they they deserve what they are getting, you know. I don't accept that. I don't accept that. And I will keep like fighting against this extremist rhetoric in my region till the very last day of my life. And how certain are you that Israel's military operation in Gaza is the only way to defeat terrorists like Hamas? You know, uh, it depends on what we mean by defeating terror, defe defeating Hamas, because if it means eliminating Hamas altogether, I don't think the military operation will succeed in that. The like I think the main goal of the military operation will be to make sure that Hamas will not become a threat in the future. Because unfortunately, we've seen from other examples of terrorist organizations in the region, in Iraq and Syria and so, and even Al-Qaeda and so, the terrorist organization does not disappear, does not fully disappear. They go under the ground and they come back later on in different names, under different names. So this could happen also with Hamas, but the goal of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, should be to make sure that Hamas becomes too weak to come back. 
this is one channel. This should be parallel, like the military activity is one channel. Military activity should be paralleled with another activity, like the diplomatic activity, which should mobilize Arab states and the international community to back Israel in this war, to back Israel by ensuring that Hamas does not receive funding from the humanitarian aid that is provided now to the people in Gaza to make sure that the civilians in Gaza are not used as human shields by Hamas, to make sure to open to open the borders for the Gazan people to uh, seek refuge in other countries like Egypt or Jordan or, or other countries. Israel needs to work more on this, but unfortunately, like all the tensions that are, are now rising with the Arab countries is also a bit concern. So this is the diplomatic, the diplomatic channel, the military channel, and there is also a war that is going on that is very, very important, and Israel needs to work on, which is a, is a media war. Unfortunately, Israel is not very good with media communications. You know, they they always fail in representing themselves appropriately and representing the truth of what's happening appropriately compared to the media machine that is working on behalf of the bad people. So I think Israel needs to do more work on this level. I think the conferences that are organized from time to time by the Minister of Foreign Affairs is a good thing, but there also should be more outreach in the Arab media, in the international media, in the English media about what's really happening there. For example, I was very happy to see that the New York Times finally, after some 82 days of the war, finally, finally, they decide to speak up about what happened on October 7th and tell the truth and publish this investigation. This should have been published earlier, you know, but I mean, better late than never, but we need more, more of this. We need more factual reporting about what happened and what's happening in the war, what is Israel's plan for the Israeli and the Palestinian people after the war and so on. There's a military war, a media war, as you mentioned. How do you win an ideological war? How do you de-radicalize people who have been brought up since birth to hate Israel, hate Jews, hate America, hate the West? Oh, that is a very good question. You know, anti-Semitism in the region is at a peak point right now. Uh, I thought like in my generation, which experienced the Arab Spring, we, we witnessed immediately after the Arab Spring when we started to see that Israel is not actually the enemy, it's the Islamists. We started to experience a decline in the rate of anti-Semitism, especially among the young people of that time. But what's happening now is due to social media, TikTok in particular, that was hijacked again by the Islamists and, and Hamas supporters and the bad people, this rate of anti-Semitism is going high again. And it's not only, they are not only uh, like using it or, or fuel, fueling the anti-Semitism only by things like uh, uh, Hamas is fighting for the Palestinians and Israel is occupying Palestine or so, but also using Islamic rhetoric, like saying that all Jews must, all, or all Muslims must be in war, in constant war with all Jews till, till the end of the days. And when the Muslims kill all the Jews, the Messiah will come and, uh, and you know, the world will be a nice place and things like that. So 
as crazy as this sounds and completely illogical and completely uh, inhuman, unfortunately, many people adopt these thoughts, these ideologies. So the issue how to change them or the question about how to change them is a very difficult one. It requires a huge campaign of de-radicalization in the entire region and it should be very well coordinated between all the governments in the region but unfortunately these governments are not willing to do this now big islamic institutions in the region like al-azhar and uh, similar institutions in, Sa in saudi arabia and uh, iran or so they are not willing to coordinate on doing this uh, so i don't think like we will see a change in this anytime soon, but we should keep trying. I mean, I don't want to sound very pessimistic, but we should keep trying. And what about yourself? What will you keep doing? And, and how confident are you that you can remain safe whilst doing it? You know, yes, for me, I will keep doing no matter what, because actually the reason why I was de-radicalized myself, because, you know, I was brought up in Egypt. I grew up in Egypt where anti-Semitism is very high and also uh, sentiments of Arabism, Arabist ideology of Abdel Nasser, you know, is also very high. So automatically you're born in Egypt with the idea that Israel is our enemy. Always, you know, and all the Jewish people are our enemies and so on. But actually, as I was growing up, I was exposed to the Israeli culture, to the Jewish culture, to the Jewish people in Egypt and in other uh, and in other countries worldwide. So I started to change my mind. I started to realize that, OK, some there is some kind of, of lies that are happening here about these people. And then I I started also to change my mind and become like a more open person, a more a more understanding of our differences and our similarities as well. I, I was able to change and I know this by firsthand. So I think by like continuing to speak about the issue, to speak about Israel, to speak about Israel, I mean, from a political perspective, to speak about the Jewish people from a religious perspective in a good light and in tell the truth about, about this and, and also by keep fighting against the radical Islamists, we will able to make some kind of change on the long run. Whether I, I would be safe doing this or not, no, of course, I cannot guarantee that because like, uh, the, well, at least the radical Islamists now call me an enemy. My own home country is uh, is refusing to support me. And on the contrary, they are chasing me. My own home country is chasing me because I said I support Israel. So I don't think um, like it's it's a safe job, but I will not stop doing it. Egyptian author Dalia Ziada there. Well, as has been the case since the war began, the fears of escalation on other fronts continues. Hamas has accused Israel of assassinating its deputy leader, Salah al-Aruri, in an explosion in Beirut. Israel hasn't confirmed or denied responsibility. Author and counter-terror expert Samuel Katz expects further action against the Hamas leadership, wherever they are. The war in the shadows is getting hot or it's getting hotter. It could be that that was a target of opportunity, usually at these memorials, um, generals and high-ranking officials from the Revolutionary Guard and the Al-Quds Force assemble. And if you can target one individual of high value, why not do a dozen or 20? 
these are targets of opportunity, um, and who knows who's behind it. The state of Israel never admits or denies its responsibility in any of these sorts of operations. But of course, people are allowed to speculate. And speculate, they obviously will. Let's talk about Beirut and what happened there. How significant do you think that is? And what is the likelihood of a significant response? In the case of the Hamas leadership, um, the Israeli leadership um, was very outspoken in that um, anyone involved at the top level of the organization, anyone involved in the planning of October 7th, anyone in the planning of anything that would come after are basically dead men walking. The fact that Aruri was, um, was assassinated um, is not a surprise. Um, he will probably be the um, first of many and I think that it presents challenges for Hezbollah, which is, was hosting Aruri and Hamas and was integral in the planning of October 7th, along with Iran that sponsors both organizations. Because if they respond with an outspoken gesture of violence, they risk a regional war. And if they respond quietly, the um, the view in the Arab world, especially among the Palestinians and the Houthis and others, is that the the support for the Palestinian was just lip service. Now Nasrallah, it should be noted, um, has been living underground in a bunker since 2006 during the sec um, after the Second Lebanon War. During that conflict, the Israelis so um, completely obliterated much of the Hezbollah political and leadership infrastructure, that he's very wary of risking it all again, knowing that what happened in what's happening in Gaza will happen to him and his followers. Now, the um, ball bearing in, in the in the works is that Hezbollah is not Hamas. They are far more sophisticated. Hezbollah has tunnels that are far wider, far deeper, and far um, forward into Israel than Hamas um, had ever dreamt of. And Hezbollah also has about 150,000 rockets and missiles that are aimed at Israel and Western allies in the region. So if you're the um, sitting in the White House or at um, 10 Downing Street, um, you wake up this morning um, banging your head against the wall saying, what the hell is going to happen next? What is your take on, on what's going to happen next? How confident are you that should Hezbollah try and do something more serious, that Israel can cope fighting on more than one front? They already have issues in the Red Sea with the Houthis. Well, the, the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, um, have prepared or can operate on two fronts. And I think one of, uh, I think the defense minister, the chief of staff said that the IDF currently is utilizing only 30% of its of its power um, in Gaza. A massive Hezbollah assault would be total war because the missiles would rain down on Israel's cities. And there were, you know, Hamas tried the same tactic, except Iron Dome um, intercepted most of them. Um, here, we're not really certain that there are enough iron domes to take out um, all the incoming warheads that are coming. Clearly, the U.S. was concerned about this when it sent the aircraft carrier group to the Mediterranean 
to um, to thwart that. And it's interesting to see if the carrier will return. Um, Secretary of State Blinken um, delayed his trip to Israel as a result of the events in Beirut. So there are a lot of moving parts, and it's a game of chess and chicken. Um, who's who can outthink the other, and who's going to blink first? Realizing that on the Hezbollah side and on the Iranian side, we're not always dealing with rational actors. Is there a sense that after the intelligence failings of October 7th, the likes of Mossad and Shin Bet are determined to make their mark in the retaliation? And now that maybe they have more intel about where some of the organizers of the attacks are hiding out, we're going to see more of these precision strikes on the leadership and significant players. Well, the intelligence intelligence failure of October 7th um, fell on two um, organs of Israeli um, intelligence, the Shin Bet, the Internal Security Service, and Amman, military intelligence. Those two agencies were responsible for Gaza. The Mossad does um, territories outside of Israel or territories that Israel did not control. And clearly it is important that a message be sent. War is many things. War is also language and um, and, and, and a transmittal of intent. It, it is important that examples be made so that future enemies don't think that they can perpetrate something like October 7th and get away with it. I don't think that for reasons of national sovereignty and national security, that Israel can allow the heads of Hamas to um, do what they did before October 7th and continue to function um, if there is any hope that Hamas can be eradicated. And, And again, the eradication of a movement like Hamas cannot be done solely militarily. It has to be done through espionage services. It has to be done legally. It has to be done financially. It is a it is a campaign that will take a long time. And behind all of this is the fact that there is an alliance that emerged um, between a Sunni group like Hamas, Shia groups, Hezbollah and the Houthis, and all kind of played by the puppet master in Tehran, um, by the Iranians to forward their regional and global goals. And that's the danger. So thinking why these individuals have to go is is not only um, an imperative for Israel, but it's an imperative for much of the West, because much of the West, either through wanting to do politically the right thing or what it thought the right thing, or allowing the status quo conti- to continue, allowed Hamas to assemble billions of dollars and divert money from civilian infrastructure into the terror tunnels. It allowed Hezbollah to take over a sovereign nation. It allowed the Houthis to dictate um, the rights of free passage in the um, in the Red Sea. And that has to stop. The world cannot be held hostage by groups that are acting on orders from Tehran. And they cannot be allowed to continue to control failed nation states. Um, Hassan Nasrallah is not the president or prime minister of Lebanon. He's the leader of a narco-terrorist guerrilla group, a terrorist group. 
And he basically is holding that country hostage. And what happens in the next 10 minutes or in the next 10 weeks or months um, and the misery that might be created is all on his shoulders. And it's, it, it's his decision. And um, no one knows exactly what's going to happen. Back to Gaza, and there is continued discussion about what happens the day after Hamas. There's been talk about deals with countries to, to take in Palestinians. There's been talk about a disagreement between America and Netanyahu over who takes control of Gaza in the short, medium and long term. How do you see things playing out? How has your opinion changed over the last couple of months? I, I think that just as important as it is to think of the day after, we should think of um, the day before and why um, a group like Hamas was able to control um, Gaza. I don't think that um, a transition of power to the Palestinian Authority can happen until the Palestinian Authority assumes responsibility for leadership as opposed to a prolonged conflict. The, um, we don't need a history lesson about opportunities to have created a Palestinian state, but clearly Hamas allowed itself or was allowed to turn the Gaza Strip and the people that lived inside it into human shields and human sacrifices. And if there will be a multinational effort to sort of bring stability back, I don't think that um, sending Palestinians overseas um, is going to happen, should happen, can happen, because it only reinforces the narrative from 1948 of the great um, disaster after the state of Israel was created in their minds. I think that the nations of the region, with a few Western nations behind them, have to realize the mistakes that were made previously, and they have to sort of um, chaperone the Palestinians into becoming a, um, a potential state as opposed to a terror hub. And that, that entails a million and one things from the um, almost the de-radicalization of the population to control over the money, control over weapons that come in, and an understanding that allowing these malignancies to, to grow um, is only a recipe for disaster. And, and that, that creates the risk of conflicts spiraling out of control because conflicts by nature can spiral out of control. So how much more or less hopeful are you today than you were before October 7th? Well, I'm in the Middle East where hope is never a good um, currency to go to the market with. No one knows. It's impossible to predict because one incident from a million and one sources can escalate this conflict beyond our imagination. And there hasn't been, there have not been individuals who have, on, on, on the leadership of, of any side, that have come up with a practical and pragmatic idea how to take everyone to the day after. It's, and that silence has allowed the radicals and the rhetoric to just have decibels that are deafening. But those aren't solutions. Um, there need to be adults in the room to figure out what works for all sides what works for security, what works for keeping the residents of Gaza away 
from being controlled by a terror army that had no interest in in saving the lives of its citizens. Quite the contrary, they they created a conflict that put a lot of people at risk and resulted in the deaths of the people that they are there to protect and serve. I think that it's important to understand that what Hamas built in Gaza since 2007 cannot be removed undone in weeks, months, and according to timetables. And I think that the hostages have delayed much of the Israeli operation and made it very difficult considering that much of it is underground. And it is an important lesson for the rest of the world that it cannot turn a blind eye to issues that it that it knows a decade down the road are just going to erupt in a ball of fire that um, could really create a global crisis of unthinkable proportions. That was the author and counter-terror expert Samuel Katz. Well, that brings an end to this week's instalment of Israel's War on Terror. You can search for more episodes wherever you typically get your podcasts. Please let us know in the comments if you've any subjects you'd like us to tackle, and we'll do our best to get into them in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening.